I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Jack Nicholson. Most people don't know this because they've seen Jack through the years in movies. And they saw him on television sitting courtside at Lakers games. But Jack Nicholson never did 60 Minutes. He didn't do Johnny Carson, even when everybody was flocking to be on Johnny Carson in the last month before he was going to leave. And he once explained, he said, look, I'm a movie star. People pluck down their money. They leave their house. They sit in the dark and they watch me on a big screen. That's a different experience than on the small screen. Even if one of those movies eventually shows up on television, the primary experience is in a theater. I don't want to break that mystique. Okay, so that ties to this story. I knew him a little bit because I saw him at the Laker games and he was a sports fan and we had some mutual friends. And I was at a large dinner once, not just the two of us, probably 10 people. Uh, and he and I were sitting across from each other. He was very, very nice. Okay, so he's in Chicago shooting Hoffa. And the Bulls are playing the Trailblazers in the 92 NBA Finals. So day of shooting's done. He's a huge basketball fan. And we look down and there he is. He's seated not center court like the, at the Lakers. He's on the baseline near one of the baskets. And the producer says to me, do you know Jack Nicholson? I said, well, a little bit. Go down there because I'm upstairs on the old Chicago stadiums before the United Center opened. I'm way upstairs like in a catbird seat. Go down and ask him if he'll come on with us at halftime. I'm like, this is ridiculous. This is a fool's errand. He's not going to, oh, you owe it to us. Go. All right. So now I got to go down the winding ramp and I come up behind him and I wait until the timeout with four minutes to go in the second quarter. And I tap him on the shoulder and I can still see his face turning over his right shoulder, coming around. And he's got that expression, at least it seemed to me like from the shining. And then he sees that it's me and he recognizes me and his face softens and he goes, oh, hi, Bob. And I say, Jack, they're watching. Just play along. I'm supposed to ask you if you'll come on with us at halftime. To which he says verbatim, Bobby, Bobby, you're a nice kid. You do good work. How can I put this nicely? No fucking way. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. The guest this week is Bob Costas. Uh, someone who really does not need uh, an introduction if you have been watching sports on television over the last uh, 30, 40 years. You know who Bob Costas is. One of the uh, singular most accomplished people in the business. Hosted Olympics, hosted every major sporting event. Uh, he's been an exceptional baseball game caller he's here today on behalf of tbs he's a member of their on-air baseball team tbs will be the exclusive home of the 2022 american league division series as well as the american league championship series bob and ron darling will be calling the alds the they have the yankees versus the winner of guardians rays so by the time guardians rays is over and you have a winner bob and ron darling will be calling yankees versus that team then for the american league championship series bob will be on site at wherever the games are 
along with Pedro Martinez, Jimmy Rollins, and Curtis Granderson hosting the TBS studio show. So you get Costas doing play-by-play in the division series. Then you have him as the host in the ALCS. So it's great to see him on baseball. We had a great conversation, 45 minutes. Uh, so many like interesting topics from um, you know baseball game calling to um, how he views whether game broadcasters can be critical of owners, can be critical of of uh, concussion protocol and brain injuries. Um, we got into uh, Vince McMahon a little bit and his resignation. Bob had some very, very famous interviews on his incredible later show with Vince McMahon. Um, he talked about uh, some of the jobs he was offered in the past. I prompted him on that and uh, kind of amazing that he was offered 60 Minutes and, uh, and uh, a role after uh, Letterman's show he also tells an incredible story about jack nicholson turning him down for an interview you're gonna enjoy that and then we finish with just cognitive dissonance in sports and now in many ways you have to um be willing in some ways to be a sportsman today to look the other way on some of the ills of this stuff you know uh leagues associated with human rights violators um leagues where um the athletes pay very very severely particularly as they get older for uh, for our pleasure. So it was a great conversation with Bob Costas. I, I always note this. If this happens, uh, uh, Turner Sports um, uh, PR person Jay Moskowitz did sit on the line to listen to this, but uh, but he uh, he did not interfere, and uh, we appreciate that. Of course, if he does interfere, you know, I could just shut the interview down. But uh, but uh, professional that he is, Jay Moskowitz was silent here. But you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Um, I cannot thank uh, Bob Costas enough for giving his time. And, um, and this was a good one. And, uh, and again, uh, I always enjoy talking to Bob and this was no exception. So 45 minutes or so with Bob Costas coming up on the sports media podcast. All right. As I said at the top, Bob Costas needs a little introduction. We'll give him a, uh, we'll give him an abridged one here. In addition to his long and accomplished resume hosting Olympics uh, every major sporting event, one of the stars of basketball back in the day. Um, he is a member of the TBS on-air baseball team this year. TBS is the exclusive home of the 2022 American League Division Series, as well as the American League Championship Series, so that they have the AL this year. Bob will call play-by-play for the American League Division Series. Whoever wins the Guardians and Rays, plays the Yankees. That is Bob's series. So Bob will be on the call for the Yankees, which I must say for Turner and Discovery, that's a smart move there. That, that If I was assigning him, that is where I would assign him as well. And then for the American League Championship Series, he will be hosting, um, uh, he can correct me if I'm wrong, I believe on site, uh, along with Pedro Martinez, Jimmy Rollins, and Curtis Granderson. So ALCS, depending on obviously who ends up winning, um, Bob will be in that city. And I am pleased to be joined by Bob Costas. Bob, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Hey, Richard. How are you? I'm good, Bob. Uh, we have talked uh, many, many times over the years. I don't remember the last time I had you on a podcast, but you have been on. If you weren't on this one, you were certainly on the, the Sports Illustrated one. So it's always great to catch up with you. Um, here's where I want to start. I, I remember one of the last times I spoke to you, you, you talked about your baseball broadcast calling. And how it was, I'm going to paraphrase you here, but you believed you were a good baseball caller, but one of the things you told me was that 
you absolutely needed more reps to get to where you really wanted to be. Since we have talked, you have gotten those reps. So here's where I want to start. As I talk to you today, in early October of 2022, how would you evaluate where you are as a game caller? Well, I'm really excited about the prospect of doing an entire series instead of parachuting in for a single game, or as was the case with the Major League Baseball Network and MLBN, for all of its terrific coverage, doesn't have any playoff games live play-by-play anymore. We used to do one in each series, alternating National League, American League. So you'd come in for game two or maybe for game three, and it was fine, but you didn't have the full narrative of the series. Uh, To do a series like this, I haven't done that since the ALCS for NBC in 2000, the Mariners against the Yankees. So it allows you to get into a rhythm, to jam a lot of stuff in, thinking, oh, well, I prepared all this stuff. That's always a temptation. There's only one game. You can let it play out. It isn't quite like playing it, but it's the closest thing to it. Then you remember every pitch. And I think that this year doing games for both TBS and MLBN, and in 2020, I did duetti games, In 2021, I did just a handful, and some of them were remote from the studio. This year, I think I wound up doing about 20 games, 18 or 20 games. Um, And so I think that rhythm is pretty close to where I want it to be. You know, I'm always impressed by the people who, like, never fall in love. I'm sorry, never fall out of love with the passion for a certain sport. You know, obviously, Vin Scully, till the end, loved baseball. You know, Harwell loved baseball. Mike Emmerich loves hockey. He'll probably be at some tiny rink on his last day on earth. You have always been that way when it comes to baseball. Um, why is that? Why has this sport for you been a lifelong love affair where it seems, you know, you were okay to give up the NFL or you might, you were okay to give up the NBA? Not only okay to give up the NFL, I initiated giving up the NFL <laughs> right. twice right. during the course of my career and only returned to it when NBC got Sunday night football because of my close personal and professional relationship with Dick Ebersole. And he wanted me to do it. And I did it. I wouldn't have done it for anybody else under any other circumstances. Um, Not that I felt hostility toward it, but for a long time, I felt ambivalence about football and some of the issues that surrounded it. I can still get engaged watching the game. You're watching Aaron Rodgers do with Tom Brady. I'm good with that. But I didn't feel uh, toward the end and actually for quite a while, as if I was the perfect person to say, hey, everybody, I'm just as excited as you are about tonight's game because I was doing it on professionalism. Could I get engaged sometimes if the circumstances were right? Yeah, but I did it on professionalism. Uh, I wasn't so happy about giving up the NBA when uh, when uh, NBC lost it in 2002. That whole era, our first year in 1991 was the first of the Jordan Championships. And then that blended right into Kobe and Shaq. And there was a whole constellation of stars around Jordan and the Bulls, around the league. The dream team was in that. So other than baseball, that was my favorite thing that I ever did for NBC Sports. And of course, the Olympics fall into their own category. It's kind of a different thing. But to your point about baseball, you know, I'm 70 years old. When I was learning sports and learning baseball, baseball was the unquestioned national pastime. And I could never, no matter what the sport was, I could never separate the voices of those sports from the games themselves. If I was shooting baskets in the schoolyard, I was hearing Marty Glickman or then Marv Albert. Uh, If I was hitting a wiffle ball or throwing a tennis ball off the stoop or off a 
a wall, I could hear Mel Allen or Red Barber or Vin Scully in my head. Uh, so baseball was always something that I was interested in doing. I was lucky enough to be part of the great NBC coverage of the game of the week in the 80s. Uh, and then when we resumed in the 90s, I got to call World Series games with Joe Morgan and, and Bob Uecker. Um, And it's the sport that I still follow most closely. Am I still interested in other sports? Yes. But am I connected to baseball? Yeah, more so than the other sports. All right. Um, and again, um, to reiterate, uh, Bob will call one of the two American League Division series. It will be um, whoever the winner of the Guardians raises playing the Yankees. All right, Bob, I want to, um, as I told you before we uh, started taping, um, there's a number of different things I want to get to, and I, I want to start here. Um, you know, many media outlets, many media people call on you um, when it comes to um, wanting to elicit a, like a broad overview opinion. The New York Times will ask you many times for this. Uh, you appear in a lot of documentaries, uh, including like what I would consider like high-end sports documentaries from like qualified professional people. How do you, I don't know if I've ever asked you this, but how do you feel about having the role of the 10,000 foot observer? How, you, you do these and I appreciate that you do these, but you know, you, re, you do realize that like they're sort of asking you for something and um, they'd like you to deliver that. But I would say in some ways there's pressure sometimes to sort of be the voice of, uh, you know, the, the overview 10,000 foot voice above. Well, I generally know what they want. And I also know that they want it in some kind of concise fashion because I know how these things are produced. But I'll tell you, Richard, I've on a few occasions said to people who asked me to be part of a documentary, you know, I really don't have any deep connection to this or any real insight about this. And I'll often offer them a list of people they ought to consider besides me. Now, I'm usually not the only voice on a given documentary, but I know that they they want a certain thing from me. And if it's about especially about something historical that I feel like I have a view of, then I'm willing to do it. I'm not standing on a street corner passing out, you know, pamphlets saying, hey, please, please ask me to do this. <laughs> you know, I'd be happy if if the requests slowed down a little bit. But I do try to be more discerning than people might think about it. If I really don't have in my mind, something significant to contribute, then I'll take a pass. I've spent a lot of time lately discussing how game broadcasters talk, particularly in the NFL on broadcasts. Um, this is my editorializing. I will ask you but sort of your own opinion in a second. We never or rarely hear in-depth discussions about third rail issues. Owners are never criticized. There's a certain language when it comes to how broadcasters talk about brain injuries. You have clearly, Bob, because I know you read and follow all this, you've observed the coverage of Tua's injury and what's been said and what's not been said. So I'd like to just sort of ask you if you could offer my listeners an overview of how you have seen this language being discussed. And given that you were in the middle of all this once upon a time, how, is, how, how should we as viewers feel about what we are being told and perhaps more importantly, what we are not being told? Well, first of all, I can't say that I seen everything that's been said there's a lot of shoulder programming and then there's all the shows during the week that address what's going on in the nfl and i've seen only a tiny fraction of that and although i'm a huge al michaels fan and i try to catch whatever he does i didn't see even one minute of the game 
in which Tua sustained uh, apparently the second concussion against the Bengals. Uh, there might be some different version of what happened against the Bills, but in retrospect, it seems pretty clear that he also had a concussion there. Um, all, all announcers who cover football, be it college or pro, ought to be aware, at least in broad terms, of the nature of concussions, how they present themselves, what the five early signs are that a layperson can perceive and observe in real time. And then they need to be aware of what the specific pro of the NFL, as the case may be. They don't have to editorialize about it, but they need to be able to recognize it and to some extent contextualize it if it becomes uh, appropriate to say, you know, there was a time not that long ago that give the guy some smelling salts and ask him how many fingers they were holding up and send them back into the game. And what still prevails to a certain extent and pretty apparently prevailed with Tua, he wanted to go back in the game. I don't know whether he was BSing when he said it was my back that caused me to wobble and, and not something buzzing around in my head, but it wasn't very long ago that players would argue their coaches or the trainer or the medical staff out of taking them out of the game. And that just can't happen anymore. So that general awareness is not really even taking a position. It's just being aware of what the presently understood facts of the matter are. And everyone who broadcasts games should be at least should at least have a baseline understanding of that. And they should familiarize themselves with what Chris Nowinski and the Concussion Legacy Foundation have put out there. In fact, they even have a course which you can take online. Bob, and uh, like the reality is that the networks and the NFL are partners, given that. What what can truly be said by game broadcasters of owners in terms of criticism? Can anything be said by these broadcasters? Well, I said some things over time. Yes, um, and, you know, I, and we know what happened. Yeah, I, I, what really happened there is misunderstood. Uh, I had already planned at my own at my own insistence, kind of a uh, an exit ramp from NBC Sports. When I signed my last contract with them in 2012, it was my stipulation that I do a couple more uh, Olympics and that 2016 would be my last year of hosting the NFL. That was my choice. They said to me in 2015, if you want to continue on a yearly basis or one Olympics at a time beyond 2016, a yearly basis with the NFL and one Olympics at a time, uh, on the Olympic coverage. And I said, that's very nice. Thank you very much, but I'm sticking with the plan. And then that plan included an emeritus clause, a five-year uh, window and maybe beyond, where, as they put it, I would be to sports what Tom Brokaw had been to news. And that worked in some ways. There'd be certain appreciation. Someone had passed away or retired or some issue would come up. And they used me intelligently in circumstances like that. But when I continued to say things which I had said before, and this distinction is important to me, so uh, bear with me here. Some people, and we live in an era where you can say anything you want. It doesn't have to be supported by any evidence. And evidence to the contrary, even if there's a mountain of it, you don't have to concern yourself with it. So people say whatever they feel like saying. And you can't correct every misimpression. Every public figure will tell you this. It's not unique to me or even close to unique to me. You can't correct every misimpression. It'd be like swatting at locusts 
There's too much out there. But one that really bothers me because it's so blatantly false is he started to talk about the flaws of the Olympics and the IOC after he was done hosting, or he came out about CTE and other NFL issues after he was done with Sunday night football, or he talked about steroids after he was done calling baseball in the window before the baseball network came into existence. All of that is complete bullshit. Provably so. If that were a charge in a court of law, all I'd have to do is bring in the tapes and the judge would dismiss the case because he or she would have their eyes glazed over after an hour or so of all this stuff. The, the first time I started talking about CTE, and remember, it's halftime of Sunday night football. Whatever the merits of what's said or done or written someplace else, nobody had the audience like that. And I couldn't use that platform every single Sunday. But I addressed that very directly beginning in 2010 and returned to it many, many times while I was still in the employ of NBC. And every time I hosted an Olympics, I tried to enter when I interviewed the heads of the IOC, whoever they might have been. I asked them questions like, what's the deal with the IOC's affinity? for authoritarian nations. Are you comfortable with the Olympic uh, torch burning over Vladimir Putin's Russia? I did all those things. I did them repeatedly and conspicuously. Now, does that make me Edward R. Murrow on the rooftops of London? No, but it certainly separates me from anybody else who's ever been in those positions with the possible exception of Howard Cosell. And that goes way, way back. Um, so, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever merit badge you get for that, fine. I mean, you know, there, there are people right now in dangerous positions around the world. They're real journalists doing real, really courageous work. Or there are people doing investigative journalism, which I have never done. But given the position that I was in and the prominence of that position, I definitely did things that other network broadcasters, as talented as they are and as much respect as I have for them, uh, did not do, did not come close to doing. I think what happened with me at NBC was that once I was in that emeritus position, it wasn't worth the trouble to them anymore. <laughs> they began to view me more as an annoyance than an asset. And I don't say that with any real resentment. I was there for close to 40 years. They enriched me personally and professionally in ways that I could never fully recount. And I have great admiration and respect for them. But we got to a point of diminishing returns. And it was probably best for both sides. It wasn't a war, but for both sides to part when we did. But I still have very cordial relationships with many of the people there. And I still have great admiration and appreciation for what we did together. And I still, when I watch, you know, I can almost tell who produced this piece or who might have had a hand in writing that piece. And, and, and I just nod my head in appreciation because they're so damn good at what they do. And I hope that I elevated it a little bit while I was there. But I know that they elevated me more than I elevated them more often than not. But you wouldn't be a thinking person if over the course of time, you didn't have some thoughts of your own that diverged from what NBC or any network would prefer that you do. And very often I was the only one pulling on the other end of that rope. Again, that doesn't make me heroic. And sometimes that led to friction, but that's all in the review mirror now. Okay. That, that, I appreciate that. And I'm really glad you, um, you offered that history. So then to take it to current day, is there anyone today in a game broadcasting position who could pull that rope specifically to being critical of, let's say, the Haslam's or Stan Kroenke or name your owner who may have done something that warrants legitimate criticism? 
there are people with enough standing to do it if they chose to do it. Um, and I'll give you one example, football related. This past Olympics in Beijing, the Winter Olympics in Beijing, the understanding among the public about, wait a minute, they're going back to China again, you know, which Human Rights Watch uh, and other such organizations label as one of the worst human rights violators on the planet. And considering their size and their influence, uh, maybe they belong at the very top of that list. They're going back there again. And so NBC's hand was almost forced. The things I had to plead with them to give me a little bit of time to talk about, to acknowledge the elephants in the room, and sometimes I was successful and sometimes not, they eventually decided, okay, we're going to have Mike Tirico address these things. And Mike did a very credible job. Um, I called him afterwards to tell him how well I thought he had done. Um, they didn't beat people over the head, but early on, they acknowledged it. They did the appropriate interviews. They gave Mike enough time, not 45 seconds here or 90 seconds there, but enough time to contextualize it. And then they moved on unless something else came up, like the Russian skating thing came up. And when it did, they addressed it. So suddenly they found enough gumption to do it. But I think the public understanding surrounding the Olympics and maybe some of it is people's attitudes changed. They didn't feel as as romantically about the Olympics. They suddenly came to the realization that unless the Chinese cut the cord and wouldn't let us leave when it was over, what's the worst that can happen to us if we just acknowledge what everybody already knows? And they did it. They did it well. And 30 Rock didn't collapse. So it can be it can be done. Now, you can fill in the blanks because if, if someone will take this out of context, not you. And if I mention specific names, they say, oh, Bob Costas calls on Joe Blow to do this or Fred Smith to do that. But you can fill in the, the names of people who now, if we're just talking about the NFL, have more than enough standing if they wanted to, to take these issues on in an appropriate and proportionate way. You um you had two very famous and maybe more, but at least the ones that I have two very famous interviews with Vince McMahon. Um, how did you view the resignation of Vince McMahon um, after uh, as many years, obviously, as he had as the head of the WWE and um, essentially the pioneer in um, the business that uh, that he ran for so long? Well, I don't have any particular insight into the circumstances that uh, leads to his presence problems, if that's what you want to call it. And I certainly take no pleasure in anybody else's difficulties in, in that respect. Uh, I think people often want to view things only in primary colors. So I must dislike Vince McMahon and he must dislike me. Now, he does continue to say when asked about our first interview, that if I were closer in size to him, that he would have beaten the yeah. <laughs> And my answer to that, almost right. amused by it, is wait a minute, let's suppose someone's on Meet the Press. And they're in the same weight class as Chuck Todd. They're a senator from Illinois. They don't like Chuck's line of questioning. Well, as long as it's a fair fight, why don't we just start pummeling one another? That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? So I don't know. Uh, but I, 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 I found Vince to be much more intelligent than some people give him credit for. When you think about it, he built an empire. He's a shrewd guy. Uh, he, can, he can think on his feet. Uh, I had no problem with it. No hard feelings. And as I've recounted before, he called me the next day after the first one and said, Bob, let's go two out of three falls. You won the first one. I'm not sure I won the first one. It might have been a draw, but you can look at it in different ways. 
But in any case, he came back for a second one, which was also very good, but not as heated as the first one. And our paths crossed a few times after that. In fact, he once gave me a ride on his private plane, me and Dick Ebersole, back from the Kentucky Derby uh, to, to New York. Uh, and, um, you know, it was all very cordial. There was another time someplace in Florida, my wife and I are having dinner and the waitress taps me on the shoulder and says, Bob, Mr. McMahon's over there, wants to say hello to you. So he's with his daughter and her husband, who is the wrestler Triple H. And so I approached the table to greet Vince and Triple H, this gargantuan guy stands up and he goes, careful, Bob, this time you brought backup. So it's all a joke. You know, it's almost like a wrestling thing, except there were some people who thought that the first one was staged. It absolutely was not staged. It wasn't like a wrestling thing. But, you know, stuff stuff happens. No, no hard feelings. And, you know, uh, I, I'm not sure how this will play out. Uh, what's happening now, since I have no real insight into uh, the business aspect and what led to Vince's resignation. But, you know, I, I hope that everyone is able to piece their lives back together without too much pain. You know, you have told some of these uh, sort of stories before, which I just find fascinating. Um, so I'll ask you a very broad one, and you can you can offer wherever you want to go. Mm -hmm. What would my listeners be surprised um, regarding jobs that you were offered in the past but turned down? Well, you know, again, in the context of this, the tone, the fact that I'm responding to your question, everything that I say will seem appropriate. As you know, because you cover this, there are more sites out there that are just aggregators by far that are reporting anything or following anything up. And very often these aggregators can't even get what they're taking from the primary source correct. They can't even transcribe it correctly or they add a clickbait headline or it's all out of context or it's as if whether it's me or whoever it is that I walked through the door and made a proclamation as opposed to just responding to a question. So right. If, if I wanted to humble brag about any of this stuff, why would I have waited in some cases 20 years, 25 years to acknowledge it? So having said all that. Right. Plus, I'm the one I'm asking you the question. I know you are. I'm the one dictating what you're about to say. I, now, I know right? you are. And if it was just this, just what you're going to write and just this podcast, I'd have no problem. But what's going to spin off <laughs> inevitably, which you have no control over and no responsibility for, that has to be the concern of any public figure. But having said that, I'm going to answer your question anyway. Um, <laughs> Thank the, you. I, the, the first one was, you know, I had such a, a great ride at NBC and I was so lucky. Uh, I never had a notion, how can I get out of here? But, you know, overtures came. And when David Letterman left NBC, when he didn't get The Tonight Show and Jay Leno did, he goes to CBS and he controlled the hour after his show. And David called me personally and offered me that hour. I had only recently left the late night program that I hosted. And one of my career regrets is that I left it too soon. Uh, it has a new life now on YouTube. I hear a lot about it from appreciative people. And I knew it was pretty good when I was doing it. And I have a greater appreciation for it now through the rearview mirror. But I had left it only shortly before that or was in the process of leaving it shortly after that. And David offered me that. And in order to sweeten the pot, CBS, which then was run by Howard Stringer, offered me a correspondence uh, spot on 60 Minutes. So that was very prestigious. On the other hand, Dick Ebersole was my close personal friend. 
it was the NBA, the era of the NBA on NBC, one of the best properties any network has ever had. I was the host of the Olympics. We're in the process of getting baseball back. Didn't last as long as I hoped, only five or six years, but we did get baseball back. And I had uh, transitioned from doing the late night show into a role with NBC News on their news magazines when they really were news magazines and not crime shows. So I was doing substantial interviews for a variety of subjects. Um, so what, what I had at NBC, as well as the loyalty factor and, and all the friendships, it trumped the offer from CBS, but it was a very, very flattering offer. And I'm you know, appreciative to David for initiating it. So that was one. You, uh, you mentioned um, later with Bob Costas. Mm-hmm. This, I was going to end with this, but you brought it up. So let's okay. talk about it now. Um, like, the, the, you, like you just referenced, I, I have watched some of these again on YouTube. By the way, just so for the audience purposes, because some of you probably might not even have been born when this was on. 1988 to 1994, uh, Bob Costas hosted later with Bob Costas. This is a show, no house band, no studio audience, no laugh right. track. Essentially... Gen- generally speaking, one guest and Bob for a very in-depth interview. To me, and I'm not just saying this to kiss Bob's ass. I think I feel like I've written this before. The two shows that I think are have always stood to me, just unlike anything I've ever watched on television. Later with Bob Costas and the Dick Cavett Show, for many very different reasons. Wow. But you just basically were given the kind of interviews that you do not see <laughs> anymore at all. So this is where I wanted to get in with you, Bob. I mean, I can ask you a million questions about later because I'm just sort of fascinated by this. But here's my first one. Having done this stuff, could this even be conceivable in 2022 when so many public figures, whether they're entertainers or politicians, I think would be weary to actually have an honest 20-minute sit-down where you can ask them anything? That was the genius, I think, of later with Bob Costas. Is I, It was one of the few shows where I actually learned something from – a guest. And so I, 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 you know, again, I'm, I'm being very candid with my audience here. I, I would say this if Bob wasn't here, that show and the cabbage show, I have never seen anything else. I love Letterman. Obviously it's just a different yeah. kind of show. I've never seen any other show where I learned more from a guest than later with Bob Costas and the cabbage show. So I just, yeah. I want one, I want to just tell you that Thanks. as a ad- admiring it. And two, I don't think it could be done today. And I'm curious if you think it well, could I'll be get done. to that part in a second, but since you mentioned Cabot, that is such high praise. Um, like almost everybody of my generation, I love Johnny Carson and I could recount all of his bits, but I often would switch back and forth between NBC and ABC when Dick Cavett was on at the same time because Dick was doing a different kind of program. And I was lucky enough to meet and become a friendly acquaintance of Dick Cavett uh, years after he stopped doing that show. And then there was a circumstance that was just so sweet for me. Uh, we were at some kind of gathering and Dick was there. And you know how it sometimes happens. You're talking to somebody and they don't know if you know the other person. And they say, Dick, do you know Bob Costas? And he said, know him. He's my illegitimate son. I was walking on air <laughs> after that, that he thought enough of me to say that in some sense, um, I was his heir, if that's not too overblown, or at least yeah. he recognized in me some of the qualities that he had brought to it, because I thought he was just a giant. Um, so there's that. Could it be done today? Yeah, I think it could be done. It's being done in some sense in podcasts. Uh, it's being done. It could be done streaming. Great, great you know, point. you could, 
there could be a show like that on HBO if it was properly positioned. Uh, but you're also correct in saying that a lot of people who might have made up the type of guest list that I had over those five or six years, they'd be more guarded now than they were then. Not because they'd have to worry about what they said to me, but because they'd have to worry about what happened to it afterwards. Not that I or my producers would misuse it, or we were huge on context. I would never do something. The term clickbait didn't exist then, but I never would do something out of context or soundbite somebody. But once now in this world, once you put it out there, anybody can vulture it any way they want, make of it any way they want. So some, let's say you were, and this is just one example out of a hundred, Mike Wallace talking for the first time on television about his lifelong battle or much of his life with depression. Here it is, 1.30 in the morning. You've got a captive audience. The phone isn't ringing. He actually said all this. This is the right time and place. And he had enough trust in me. This is the right time and place to do this. But the, nothing's confined to its original context anymore. So maybe Mike would be just as willing but he'd have to take into account what I'm saying here isn't just going to be received the way I'm thinking of it. Me sitting here and you at, on your couch at home at 1.30 in the morning, it could wind up anywhere and any portion of it could be plucked out of context and cherry picked and click baited. So I think that that might be one of the reasons why people would be ready to do what they so often did with Dick Cavett, what they so often did with me. Do, is there a memorable guest that you always wanted from that show that you were not able that you were not able to get? Everybody wanted J.D. Salinger. You know, that was the, the great white whale. But, you know, J.D. Salinger, people would send him, uh, as we understand the story, they'd send him long letters of appreciation and he wouldn't even open them, you know, or he'd have an assistant saying, Mr. Salinger has no interest and what you have to tell him, even if you think he's the greatest human who ever drew breath. Uh, so that was that was never going to happen. Um, Jack Nicholson, most people don't know this because they've seen Jack through the years in movies and they saw him on television sitting courtside at Lakers games. But Jack Nicholson never did 60 Minutes. He didn't do Johnny Carson, even when everybody was flocking to be on Johnny Carson in the last month before he was going to leave. And he once explained, he said, look, I'm a movie star. People pluck down their money they leave their house, they sit in the dark, and they watch me on a big screen. That's a different experience than on the small screen, even if one of those movies eventually shows up on television. The primary experience is in a theater. I don't want to break that mystique. Okay, so that ties to this story. I knew him a little bit because I saw him at the Laker games, and he was a sports fan, and we had some mutual friends. And I was at a large dinner once, not just the two of us, probably 10 people, uh, and he and I were sitting across from each other. He was very, very nice. Okay, so he's in Chicago shooting Hoffa. And the Bulls are playing the Trailblazers in the 92 NBA Finals. So day of shooting's done. He's a huge basketball fan. And we look down and there he is. He's seated not center court like the, at the Lakers. He's on the baseline near one of the baskets. And the producer says to me, do you know Jack Nicholson? I said, well, a little bit. Go down there because I'm upstairs on the old Chicago stadiums before the United Center opened. I'm way upstairs, like in a catbird seat. Go down and ask him if he'll come on with us at halftime. I'm like, this is ridiculous. This is a fool's errand. He's not going to, oh, you owe it to us. Go. All right. So now I got to go down the winding ramp. 
And I come up behind him and I wait until the timeout with four minutes to go in the second quarter. And I tap him on the shoulder and I can still see his face turning over his right shoulder, coming around. And he's got that expression, at least it seemed to me, like from The Shining. And then he sees that it's me and he recognizes me and his face softens and he goes, oh, hi, Bob. And I say, Jack, they're watching. Just play along. I'm supposed to ask you if you'll come on with us at halftime, to which he says verbatim, Bobby, Bobby, you're a nice kid. You do good work. How can I put this nicely? No fucking way. Jack, I got it. I'll take that as a polite no. Enjoy the rest of the game. I left. <laughs> so Nicholson, Nicholson never showed up. Um, in sports, DiMaggio did do interviews with me, and he was, you know, notably, notably reticent, but did DiMaggio. The, the one now is Sandy Koufax, but I greatly respect and admire Sandy for being true to himself. I think he's a genuinely shy and humble person, but also more than smart enough to know, why does he have to gild the lily? You know, just kind of staying apart from it. You see him sitting at a Dodger game, or maybe he speaks at Vin Scully's retirement. You know, that, that only increases the romance and mystique that surrounds him. He's very polite and friendly to everybody when he cross paths with them. And the one time he did something with me, Baseball had named at an all-star game in Cincinnati, their Mount Rushmore, the four greatest living players, um, Sandy, Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, and Johnny Bench. So we call Sandy and say, you're not the focus here. You're with your other Mount Rushmore guys. And on that basis, he agreed to do it. And he was wonderful the way he interacted with the other three and, and told stories. But even then, I remember saying at one point, you know, you're sort of like the baseball equivalent of Gale Sayers. The sample size is small, but it was more than big enough to make you an all-timer. And instead of responding to that with any elaboration, he just said, well, thank you. You know, that's just, that's kind of who he is. So I respect that. Yeah. Yeah. Verducci, Tom Verducci, my old colleague at Sports Illustrated, just an amazing yep. feature on him. And it was, uh, uh, one of the one of the only times Sandy's ever decided to sit down for uh, long form, and I think you're onto something. That uh, um, we live in a world, Bob, as you know, where we're just overwhelmed with content yes. and people speaking and takes. And Koufax always remains uh, above the fray and the mystique. Quite frankly, for that reason, because yeah. we don't hear. Yeah, and you know, like I enjoy having a conversation like this with you. I know you're credible. Um, very often I'll do things just to be a nice guy. You know, some kid calls and uh, you went to Syracuse with my dad or whatever, and you know, it would mean something to them and you do it. Uh, but there have been a few times that I've regretted it because of the things that we're talking about here. Not so much because of what was said in the actual interview, but what was done with it after the fact by people who have no credibility and no responsibility and no fidelity to facts, fairness, or context. Uh, that's a, it's a risk that you run. Here's the last one I want to ask you. And again, I appreciate, uh, I greatly appreciate your time. Um, I've been thinking a lot about this and writing it as well. And this isn't anything kind of new, um, new thought, but in many ways as sports fans, we sort of have this cognitive dissonance where like for the NFL, for instance, like, those of us who love the NFL, 
Like we are willing to put away the violence for a couple of hours and what it does to these people's bodies for our pleasure and for our experience. I love the Olympics as you do. Um, I covered seven of them. I think you covered 75 of them. But again, there's a, as a, as a fan of the Olympics or even covering the Olympics, you do make some kind of deal. Like if you're, if you're in Russia or if you're in Beijing, these are countries with horrible human rights uh, violations, and and you you not necessarily look look the other way, but you you want to be part of the athletic greatness, understanding that you have made a little bit of a deal here to be in these countries. The NBA has its longstanding relationship with China. You've mentioned before about China's human rights issues. So here's what I'm getting at. Um, I'm thinking this week, Bob, as I see OPEC's biggest production cut since the start of the pandemic, um, I think about Live Golf, and I think about the the golfers who have made this decision to join the uh, Saudi-based tour, and I think about golf fans who watch this. And this is not necessarily just to knock on Live, but it's a, it's a larger question, and again, I know not exactly the easiest one, and you always get asked these kind of questions, but... Do we now live in a world where in some way you always have to have this cognitive dissonance that there's always going to be an, a, an element of discomfort in somewhere in sports and you have to just decide if you can live with that discomfort? I, I can't live with it when it comes to live. I'm just telling you my personal opinion. I'm not promoting that tour. I, I'm not going to write about it much unless I have to. I, I just I feel a distaste for that. But when it comes to the Olympics, I have made that decision that I love the Olympics and I'll write about it and I've covered it. So I'm not really asking you a question here, but more of a thought exercise. Like, how do you navigate this as a sports fan? Well, I agree with you that if not always, much of the time, some cognitive dissonance is required. Uh, What I tried to do in covering it was at least acknowledge those issues. And I felt it was my responsibility, especially in a host role, you know, I'm not I wasn't the person calling the speed skating where you can just confine it to that event. I was the host. Um, and so I felt a responsibility to acknowledge those issues. And very often I was the only person there with any influence at all that seemed interested in acknowledging those issues. So it was a little bit of a slog, but I, I did the best I did the best I could. And at least in that respect, my conscience was clear with football. It got to the point, not where I felt that football was evil or anything like that, but where I couldn't, the balance was out of whack for me. There was too much ambivalence for me to be the front man anymore. Um, You know, when Mike Tirico was doing his first Olympics, which was in South Korea in 2018, they asked me, I was still there in the emeritus role. They asked me if I would host the Olympics, I'm, I'm sorry, host the Super Bowl, because it was like three or four days before the start of the Olympics. And Mike would have had to fly across 100 time zones. And it was his first Olympics. And he, at least as the primetime host, he had to get prepared. I said, sure, I'll do it. Um, and then because of what I had said and continued to say about CTE and about Colin Kaepernick being blackballed, which doesn't mean by saying that, that I agree with Colin Kaepernick on everything he said and done but I think it was pretty obvious he was being blackballed and, you know, and other issues then either because the NFL was pressuring them or because they decided on their own, they didn't want to put up with that possible pressure. They decided that I was not the right person to host that Super Bowl, which was not only okay with me, it was a relief. But then I said to them, why don't you have me interview Roger Goodell? 
have someone else host what you call a day-long celebration of football. I find a lot of it exciting and worthwhile and interesting, but I'm not 100% down with it. So there's always going to be a little bit of discomfort there. But why don't you have me interview Roger Goodell? Take 15, 20 minutes out of a six-hour-long pregame show, which the whole country is watching, and let me responsibly address the issues with Roger Goodell. Now, they told me they asked. I'm not sure how hard they pushed, but they told me they asked, and Goodell turned it down. And so at that point, if you had said to me, okay, Bob, you have your choice. It's up to you. You can host the whole thing, or you can interview Goodell. It wouldn't even be, in one second, I'd say, interview Goodell. That's much more interesting to me and a more significant contribution that I could make. But it became a moot point. And then I wasn't involved in that Super Bowl at all. And by then, I didn't care because my feelings were ambivalent. Uh, You talk about the, the essential nature of football, no matter what they do. And in fairness, they have taken steps, even if sometimes there are missteps, as might have happened with Tua. They have taken steps to improve their their safety protocols. Uh, There is much greater awareness. But if there's a problem with football, that problem is football itself. The essential nature of the game almost assures that some percentage of its participants are going to have neurological damage somewhere down the road. Uh, You have to be, if if you're not aware of that, you're not paying attention. And if you're going to enjoy it and embrace it, I guess you have to just put that put that to the side. Uh, And then there are other issues that come up. And I just felt like I wasn't the right person to be saying, hey, come on into the tent. All right. Before uh, before I uh, give Bob's TBS promo again, let me just leave my listeners with this. All right. So I, I went to uh, I, I Googled uh, later and just looked at one little run here of for one season. So just listen to this. Listen to the guests that Bob had like for this like a short group. Lou Gossett Jr., Peggy Lipton, Smothers Brothers, Robert Duval, Karen Allen, Bill Murray. I think I'm now skipping some years. Jerry Orbach, Morrissey, Bobby Seal, Roy Scheider. This is one singular show. All those different people, 22-minute interviews. Again, Bob, I, I can't tell you how big a fan I was of this. It's like we will not see this again. And uh, again, it's like... Uh, sometimes when you get into a YouTube rabbit hole, I like watching later. And again, I'll watch Cavett, which is like, you know, Malcolm X, the mamas and the papas and some book author I've never heard of. Yeah, it's incredible. Oh, it, it, it was. I mean, you have Gore Vidal squaring off with Norman Mailer. Just incredible, yeah, incredible. I mean, just, stuff. You'll never see this again. Have Muhammad Ali sitting there with Joe Frazier. You know, just know. just in, yeah, well, that's incre- incredible. incredible, incredible stuff. In fact, just on a sports thing, he had Mickey Mantle on with Paul Simon and Paul has retold this story many times. And this is, you know, late 1960s, early seventies. So Mrs. Robinson is still fresh in mind. And Mickey Mantle says, why was it, where have you gone? Joe DiMaggio. Did you think that the Yankees didn't have a center fielder after Joe DiMaggio? And Paul Simon looked at him and he said, syllables, Mick syllables. Where have you gone? Mickey Mantle. Where have you gone? Joe DiMaggio. (laughs) <laughs> syllables mick syllables all right bob costas uh he's part of tbs is on our baseball team again tbs exclusive home of the 2022 american league division series and the al championship series bob specific assignments he'll be calling the alds with ron darling um and he has the yankees versus the winner of the guardians and rays then he's at the alcs on site with pedro martinez jimmy rollins curtis granderson he'll be calling 
Uh, the ALCS could actually still be in New York. Obviously, it could be in Houston, and we'll watch all these wild card series to see where Mr. Costas will eventually end up. Bob, uh, I always enjoy these conversations. I can't thank you enough for taking the time. I'm really glad that you're still doing uh, baseball broadcasting because I know you love it, and, uh, and I'm sure we'll catch up again soon. Thanks, Richard. Thank you uh, for joining me Thanks. today. Thanks. I really appreciate it. Podcast. Be well. Good to see you again. All right. Back in the studio. Uh, my thanks uh, to Bob Costas for uh, for coming on and uh, – Again, like I could, yeah, I've talked about many, many times. I obviously have great admiration for his career. I could do hours with Bob because he's, you know, we barely even touched the surface of sort of what he's done. That he's probably got a million like type of Nicholson stories um, <laughs> that he uh, provided on this podcast. And again, like you know, no bullshit on my end. Like later was just an unbelievable show. I mean, the two Vince McMahon interviews alone are just worth uh, watching and. Um, yeah, Costas made a good point. Like, you know, I guess in some ways, like, podcasts are, have become that, you know, Rogan in his own way, obviously, has sort of created a, a, a certain template. But even that show doesn't have, like, the kind of, like, sort of guests that, like, Cabin had. Like, the kind of explosion of different types of guests. But, uh, again, I can't... Uh, I can't recommend later, uh, later enough. It just was a really, really remarkable show uh, for its time. All right, if you like these kind of conversations, head to the archives. Uh, the podcast before this one, we had um, a conversation about how many injury replays are appropriate for sports networks to show. That was with Chad Finn of the Boston Globe and, and Kyle Coster of The Big Lead. Also had, um, as part of that, Jay Donde, who is the guest editor for Year's Best Sports Writing 20. 22. Um, excited to see Jay's book out. Prior to that, coverage of Brett Favre and Mississippi's uh, welfare scandal with uh, Shalise Manzi Young and AJ Perez on that same topic. Had Anna Wolf, the, uh, the incredible investigative reporter from Mississippi Today, who has broken so many of these stories. She was on the September 21st podcast. Uh, Thursday Night Football, Prime Video Executive Producer Fred Gadelli and Lead Director Pierre Musa on the September 19th podcast covering the NFL and all its issues, a conversation with Jenny Brentis of the New York Times and Lindsey Jones of The Ringer. Again, head to the archives page. There should uh, be some conversations that uh, you'll find interesting. Want to, uh, again, thank uh, everybody for the great uh, reviews and the nice words. If you want this podcast to continue, head to uh, wherever you get it, uh, Apple, Stitcher, etc. Leave us a five-star review and a nice note. That is how the podcast will... Uh, We'll continue, and uh, I'm happy to read uh, some of the uh, <laughs> some of the uh, some of the comments, particularly if they're nice uh, on air. Uh, happy, happy to do that. I want to thank Patrick Antonetti for his hard work. Thank you for producing this podcast, Patrick. I want to thank everybody, Cadence 13. Thanks for their support, and thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.